Okay, Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So now that we're seeing at at this point in his ministry that Jesus is drawing crowds of people so large that he cannot just enter a town and preach there. People have heard what sorts of miracles are happening and what he's been doing. And so they're flocking in groups to be healed or just to see someone be healed and see what this teacher is talking about. So Jesus withdraws with his disciples. Like I said in verse 7, he withdraws with his disciples. Now this disciples is not the full 12 yet. um, But we have seen four so far that have been named. Uh, Simon and Andrew, brothers, and James and John, brothers. Now, there are other people who were following him as well that could be referred to as disciples here, but he has this inner circle of, of trusted followers that will grow to 12, as we'll see today. But here he draws from the towns out toward the sea. And as he withdraws from the towns, he draws even more people People from Judea, Galilee, Jerusalem, Edomea, and, or Edom, uh, and beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Mark names all of these places very specifically because he's showing us the breadth of Jesus' ministry. He's showing us how wide of an area already that people are coming from to see him. He doesn't want us to get the feeling at any point that, that just a few people from each town would come out and hear his teaching as he went. He doesn't want us to think that it's just a few. He wants us to understand that people knew something radical was happening. People had spoken to others in other towns and they had traveled just to hear him talk, just to see what he was about, see what he was doing. So he's becoming famous. Something very special and everyone who heard of it wanted to be a part of it or at least see what was going on. But curiosity... And the need for physical healing creates a mob. A mass of people that's pressing in on Jesus. Jesus needs to, or has to, get the disciples to get him a small boat so he can teach from just offshore so he's not crushed by people. Because if you're surrounded by people, you can't get your voice out. But so Jesus gets a boat ready so that he can step into it and get out in the water just a little bit so people can gather around the shore and they can still hear him. This is a necessity. And so far, he's asking the right guys for that job. Uh, what you might have noticed if, about the first four disciples that, that I just mentioned by name, they're all fishermen. They're all fishermen by trade. So finding a, a boat and getting a small boat ready for him would be a little bit easier for them than it would be for someone else. Now, given the quick growth of the crowd, I think it's 
easy for us to go and say, look, they're all just following him just to see miracles. And no doubt, there is, there is a, a serious faction of that. But there's also a real need for healing in our world, isn't there? We know that Jesus came for a much bigger purpose than just healing a few people of their diseases. But he did heal people of their diseases. We talked a few weeks about the, the bigger reason for many of the miracles. But we should also recognize Jesus' pity for the hurt and the ill. Jesus healed many because they needed it and he could do it. Some of the miracles recorded are not even in front of crowds, but simply because he took pity on an individual person. Jesus has nothing to prove, right? But he has everything to give. And he seems to do so freely. There is beauty in the fact that even though we see Jesus has a larger, more important work to do, that's infinitely more important, right? He still cares enough to stop and heal hurting people as he has the opportunity. And Jesus interacts with us a lot in the same way. And Jesus came to save for himself, to claim for himself a people, a church. But he also comes to save us individually. And we all know that through our experience. Now we have to push back on the, on the rampant individuality of our modern age. But in that we cannot, we must not deny that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, cares for individuals. He's willing to stop a crowd, to stop a, a, a procession of people for one person. And that's your story and that's my story. We can't forget that. Jesus shows us again and again throughout the gospel stories that he's willing to do that. So this is one of the things that, that has struck me as I've read uh, and reread the gospels as an adult outside of just the stories that you hear growing up of, of Jesus. The thing that's stricken me the most about when I reread the story of Jesus is the sweetness of Christ. The care for the hurting, the intimacy with individuals, it's so evident when you read the Gospels. He speaks with complete authority he calls out the teachers of the day, but he's also perfect in meekness, in gentleness, in love. This is just one of the ways that Jesus is like no other character in the Bible, nor in the history of the world. No one could move with such power against the ruling, uh, ruling forces of the day. No one else could move with such power against demons and demon-possessed people, against even the wild forces of nature like storms, and yet still be so approachable by lepers and outcasts. He stoops to speak with blind men and women on the street. He speaks to prostitutes. He speaks with tax collectors who were considered by the Jews to be a lower class, not worth acknowledging. He preaches with an insight deeper than anyone else, yet he doesn't shy away from having conversations with lepers and blind men. That is the kind of God that we worship. Jesus shows us he's in complete control honorable and sovereign and yet approachable to little children. There's no other religion or belief system that shows a God to be so gentle and lowly and yet all-powerful at the same time. And it's not that Christians have designed or thought up their God to be this way. 
I think we as Christians from, from time to time until now have still naturally tried to make either God more unobtainable or too lowly. And the real Jesus of the Bible is both of those, in a sense. Jesus says of himself in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is inviting and challenging at the same time. He's challenging because he also says to those who knew him and where he was born. He says this in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He said this to the Pharisees who were challenging him, to which they recognized this as a claim to deity, since he was claiming that he existed before Abraham, and he also used the term I am for himself the term that Yahweh tells Moses to tell the people sent him. That's the term that the Jewish people knew was the name Yahweh gave to Moses. I am. So he's approachable, but he's a sovereign Lord of the universe. He's both. This is the kind of teaching that Jesus is doing along with these healings and exorcisms that all the crowds are coming to see. Right? But as more and more people come to him, uh, this mass of individuals is now making it hard for him to even teach. So Jesus changes his tactics, gets a small boat, and gets ready to be able to move into that so that the people don't crush him. He doesn't stop preaching, but he does make it so more people can hear. One of the other things that we have to take note of here uh, is that Jesus is not just confronted by those needing physical healing, right, again and again. But we also see those approaching him under demonic control, right? The text said, not we read today, and it's a bit of a repeat because we talked about it a couple times so far, but the text said that whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and called out that he was the son of God. This is not the only time our texts or other gospels mention this. Why is this significant? He's not telling them to be subordinate. Jesus is not telling them to fall down. They must be. See, they recognize him. They know who he is. And so they name him. They call him out as the son of God. But Jesus tells them to be quiet. He doesn't need public relations from demons. He doesn't need the darkness to call out the light. Even though they, that may have been a, a powerful and even scary way to proclaim who he was, is to let these people, these, these demon-possessed people, proclaim who he was. He tells them to be quiet. Jesus doesn't want the proclamation of who he is to be done by his enemies. Let's continue our story back in verse 13. We'll keep reading. And he went up on the mountain... And called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also called, named apostles. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James. 
to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So first he withdrew to the sea, but now the second part of the story is telling us that he is withdrawing up to the mountains or hill country, as, as sometimes it's translated. The point is that Jesus is pulling further out for a purpose. Uh, many times he would retreat to pray, but this time he's retreating to call. He's calling disciples. This is where he calls and names the twelve. Mark says here that he calls them apostles, which means uh, sent ones. So he is calling some to come to him so that ultimately he can send them back out. Now the text uses very specific wording. It says, he called to him those whom he desired. I think it's interesting in a couple ways. First, this is not normal behavior. In fact, none of the disciples are called in a normal way, at least not for a first century rabbi. Rabbi is what Jesus is here. He's a, he's a teacher or rabbi who is going to gather students for himself or disciples. Now, a rabbi would have students come to them and ask to follow or apply to follow. They would basically apply to be a disciple, but not so with Jesus. Jesus calls out from the crowds those whom he chooses or desires to be in his inner circle. And the second thing that I think is interesting in this wording is that it specifically states that these men are chosen, or as the text said, desired by him. These are men he chooses intentionally. They're not random. He's choosing them specifically. A normal rabbi would choose some of the best students. Ones who had already proven their, their worth to be his disciples. They had already learned a certain amount so he can build on that. Again, this is not so with the crew that Jesus chooses. In this list, you have less than desirables. You've got quite a few fishermen. A tax collector who's viewed by a tra as, as a traitor. Jews would use a tax collector as a traitor to Rome. You've got a doubter, a political zealot, and who knows what else. I think that the list that it gives us is it intentionally bookended with Simon and Judas. Because the first would deny Jesus and the last would be his betrayer. I think that does that for a purpose. I think it's doing that because a point is being made for us. Jesus chose the most unlikely men to start his church. There's nothing glorious about any of these men. They're losers, cheaters, deniers, doubters. He chose working class men over scholars. He chose poor men over rich. What that should tell us is that these men aren't the point. If there was some trait that they were chosen for, we would have it in the record because it would be something that we should strive for. But they aren't the characters that we're here to learn about. They aren't the characters that we should strive to be like. Now, I've heard it taught before, and it's pretty common to, to, to talk about their, their willingness, the disciples' willingness to drop everything and follow him. Um, and that was part of the point. But I, I have to disagree with that because 
That's not what the text actually focuses on. In fact, it doesn't talk about that at all. The Bible tells us what? He chose them. He calls them, so they follow. It's irresistible. It doesn't say anything about their willingness, just that they did what he said. Jesus says, follow me, so they do. And not to belittle their willingness, which no doubt they had, but I think this is more about the creator of the world than it is their willingness. This list of people that he uses should be an encouragement to us. Now, based on the kind of characters Jesus uses to start the history's greatest religious movement, I would hope that this brings us all some sort of hope of what Jesus can do with you and I. Because if we look at them and what God did with them, then we don't have to feel worthy before we feel like we can be used. We don't have to feel worthy before we feel called. Now, Jesus has quite the following. There are many disciples, those who are following his teachings and literally following him, but he calls an inner circle of 12. Just about every commentary that you can read will point out that this number is very specific, right? It's significant and it's intentional. The number 12 is used here very specifically to call to mind the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus calls out the 12 just as Yahweh calls out the 12 tribes from slavery. He's showing us that he is setting up something new. He is setting up a new covenant. A new covenant with man. He will use these 12 to be apostles of it. To send out the good news of the kingdom. It says he appointed 12 and that word appointed is an interesting word because it can be translated made as well. In other words, he made them 12. In other words, he's commissioning them for a new kingdom. He's making them into a group. He gives them access to be with him constantly to hear all his teaching. He calls them to himself and then he names them apostles. He even renames some of them, as you might have noticed in the, in the text. Simon, first on the list whom Jesus names Peter or Rock. James and John are renamed Boanerges, or the Sons of Thunder. Oh, no one knows why he calls them that either. It's left a mystery, but most think it's just probably their personalities were pretty loud. But what's this business of naming? Why is this mentioned? Why is this called out? Why do we see this? Because we see repeatedly in Scripture renaming of characters. You know, we see uh, the New Testament example of Saul is later Paul in the book of Acts. There might be a little controversy over whether Paul renames himself or whether God does it. But there are other instances as well. God, God renames Abram, Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob becomes Israel. Naming and renaming is, is important. You know, a few weeks ago, my children bullied me into, oh, it's true. They, they bullied me into um, visiting some friend's house who had some puppies. <sighs> yeah. Uh, finally, we went to go play with puppies and see which ones we liked the best. Oh, now, I knew at that point I had already purchased a puppy. Um, <laughs> but I went along with it to say, okay, well, we'll see, guys. You know, and 
I wanted to maintain some sort of illusion of control in my family. <laughs> no, no, that might not be the case with everyone, but maybe I'm a bit more of a sucker when it comes to dogs and puppies. There, people say there's two types of people, cat people and dog people. Well, I'm like an extra level dog person, so when I see a dog on the, on the side of the road, I get down on my knees and I start talking baby talk to it. So I'm, it's not, it's not uh, an attractive quality, it's just who I am. <laughs> my kids know that, though, and, and so they said, if we get dad in front of these puppies, we get at least one of them. Um, so, but as soon as we met some puppies and then we're just driving home, what's the first thing we did on the ride home? We we're talking about what we would name a specific puppy. They already had names, they had placeholder names, but we really wanted to change it. Which name would be really cute? Which one would we want to call out when you're calling them to come in? Why is that of the first importance to us? Or how about when you're pregnant, right? All the baby name books come out. Baby names on websites are researched. Meanings are often taken into account, or maybe they should be in some circumstances. Why? Because names have importance. Your name identifies you. It will identify you for the rest of your life. And what does the act of naming, the person who does the naming, what does that act do? It solidifies you as the name giver. It's a very authoritative thing. It's a very parental thing. When Jesus names them apostles, or gives them new names even, or even nicknames like Sons of Thunder, he is saying, you are mine now. I know you. Here is your name. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, it talks about receiving a new name from God that is secret, that no one knows. It says that we will each be given a new name that only he and we know. I don't know exactly the significance of that, and I don't think anyone does, but it's, it's a reminder that God knows you individually and calls you. He names you specifically. Revelation 13.8 says that he wrote, he wrote your name in the book of the Lamb who was slain. And he wrote your name before the foundations of the earth. He knows you in a way that no one else knows you. Again, call, God calls to himself. He saves a church, a group, a people, a beloved community. But he individually calls and knows each of you so intimately. What kind of a God is that? What other religion shows us a, a God who is so complete and sovereign and yet so intimate and gentle with his creation? Let's read the next two verses, 20 and 21. It says this, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So we can see that Jesus goes home, um, which is basically saying he's going back to his base of operations in Capernaum. Quite likely the home of, of Peter and Andrew. But wherever Jesus goes, eventually this mob, this crowd, this mass of people follows Eventually, a crowd will form around him. And this time, there's, there's nowhere to retreat to. He's in the middle of the city. 
And the crowd becomes so oppressive that they, it says they cannot even eat, meaning his, he and his disciples can't even rest and eat some sort of food. And this is where Jesus' family hears how crazy things have gotten. And they decide to seize him. Very specific words there. Jesus' family decides to seize him or to take control of him for his own good. That's what it's, it's pointing to. They're saying this is getting out of, out of hand. He needs his family. Because they hear people saying things like, he's out of his mind. Have you ever felt misunderstood? Like you say something and someone takes it completely out of context or they take it completely the wrong way or even mischaracterize you. I think we all, or at least most of us, have felt that sense of injustice before when we're misunderstood, we're mischaracterized. This next section that we just started and and will finish next week is an example of just about everyone misunderstanding and mischaracterizing Jesus. I'm sure that there is a frustration building up there on Jesus' part with this and even some feelings of injustice because he experienced the feelings that you and I have experienced. When I, when I think about that, it reminds me of Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When I'm mischaracterized, when I am misunderstood, misrepresented, I feel that sense of injustice. My natural inclination is to lash back out or to stand up and defend myself with righteous indignation, maybe even a little bit of vengeance. Well, that's not how Jesus reacts, as we'll see next week. But I just want us to feel for a moment all the little things that we've been through in our lives, the, the injustices, the atrocities of life. Hebrews 4.15 says, that he has felt those as well. He has felt the weight of this world. He suffered many things in his life. Even his very closest disciples and and even his own mother and brother and sisters are buying into the notion that they need to rein him in because he's acting all crazy with all this kingdom talk and healings and exorcisms. Like I said, we will get into the family element more next week because the verses at the end of this chapter elaborate. But I just want to remind you and myself that if you felt injustice, so has he. If you felt grief, so did Jesus. When you feel pain, so did he. If people have turned their back on you and family and friends have abandoned you, he's felt that pain. He was made fun of. He was mocked, beaten, spit upon. He was convicted unjustly. And not only that, he bore the weight in the eyes of his father of all of our sin. The just for the unjust. Again, what kind of a God does this? 
What, what kind of a God descends and takes on the things that he does not need to in order to be able to sympathize with the weaknesses of his creatures who are in utter rebellion from him? What kind of a God voluntarily goes through every pain and suffering that his creation wrought upon themselves? What kind of a religion worships a God who, who goes to his death being misrepresented, mischaracterized? What kind of a savior dies? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? For me, the answer is a God whom I could never dream up or imagine. People can say all, that, that, all they want, that, that Christians worship a magical uh, sky fairy. But what I see and read in these texts, I don't think any reasonable human would come up with. It's far too, it's far too gritty. It's far too unfair. It's far too real. We serve a perfect and righteous God, but we do not serve one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses even to the point of death. I bring this up a couple times because I think, and I'm just taking a bet here, that you've forgotten that. Because I do as well. We forget the sweetness of a Savior who goes through all these things for us. Because in the church, we, we're, we're really good at, at, at taking texts and studying the theology behind them and dissecting them and pulling them apart, pulling out, pulling out some, some life application lessons, some things that we can use uh, to, to do good things in the world around us, to, to spread the gospel, to care for our children better, to care for our aging parents better, to do all these things better. And, and we study this Jesus and we pull him apart and dissect him and we forget how beautiful he really is. It's so easy for us to forget what a wonderful Savior you have. It's worth taking some time to think over before you come and take communion today. Because it's not just a God who, who controls the world and who covers the arc of history with his hand, although he is. He's also a God who stoops down to your level. A God who's so incredibly sweet, so incredibly meek, that little children can approach him but also a God who's so incredibly awful that the people of Israel do not even want to get near a mountain where he got near. That is such a beautiful and strange combination that I, I just don't see people make that up. Our, our God is a consuming fire, and he is pure love. 1 Corinthians 11 says that every time we partake of communion, we proclaim our Lord's death until he returns. It's not, just that, it's not just that we remember, we are telling others and each other that, that we are staking our hope on this. Our very souls are in this act tied together with a God who died an unfair death in our place. I just want us to remember that today as we commune. He is, is broken and poured out for the sins of the world, but also pour, broken and poured out because he loves you. 
so much. We cannot forget that. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we see the beauty and awe of a, a wonderful Savior in Jesus. What kind of a Savior do we have? The absolute Lord of the universe. A God whom we should approach with shaking hands and swelling love-filled hearts. Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here this morning, to, to the blessing of being able to open this book and read about the real Jesus who lived his life, who named his disciples, and who wrote our names in a book before the foundations of the earth. Too big for us to comprehend, Lord. Our brains are far too small. And so in turn, we just praise you. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.